Today, I have Jennifer Fisk with me. Jennifer, we're going to start first with what has happened to you in your life with anxiety and panic disorders and how, where that led you and and, um, and led you to become involved with CMHA Niagara. Okay. So can you just tell me a little bit about what life is like for you um, when when you're, you know, in an anxiety or panic area? And in it, so if I'm in a moment of anxiety, uh, the first thing is it feels like there's a bear sitting on my chest or an elephant sitting on my chest and I cannot breathe. And it can be for seemingly innocuous reasons. Um, the other thing that really characterizes for me my panic attacks is I cannot shut down my brain. I literally, um, I will worry about things that nobody <laughs> needs to worry about, things that will happen years in the future. And I, um, on a good day, I know what I'm doing and I can stop it and start to, you know, use the tools that I've been given. Um, on a bad day, my brain just runs away with itself. So it, uh, it can be, in the worst moments, very, very debilitating. I am also very lucky, though, that um, when I finally did seek treatment, um, I've got some pretty good tools to use. And most days become bad, go from bad days to OK days. So so I'm very lucky with that. But uh, for me, it's, it's little things. Um, I often work in Toronto for my job. And there's nothing that frightens me more than the concept of the subway or taking the GO train. Um, so that is very unusual and that most people love mass transit. To me, it is the most frightening thing on earth. But you'll take the bus. I will absolutely take the bus. So that's interesting. Why is the bus better than, because there are people on a bus. And there you are, are people trapped. on a bus and, um, I'm actually very lucky. So, uh, for me, first of all, the bus has a very limited number of people. Um, the hour in the morning that I'm usually taking it up means there's very few people on the bus. Uh, it's also about a comfort surrounding piece. Uh, a bus gets you, you get on in one place, you get off in another. There's no chance of getting um, on the bus I take. There's no chance of kind of getting off in the wrong place or heading to the wrong city. Um, so it's, it's very easy to fall into the regiment that I need it to be in for my mind to be quiet. Um, Go train is the complete opposite for me or the subway where I'm now surrounded by people, um, announcements you may or may not be able to hear, directions. Uh, for me, I think under the subway being underground, not being able to put myself anywhere in a location is very, very difficult. So, so those are the types of things. And for the longest time, I tried to do those things anyway. Um, didn't want to admit I had an anxiety problem and definitely was not going to admit in front of coworkers who I frequently travel with that I had these issues. So I would literally stand on the subway tracks and start to have panic attacks. And, you know, and somebody would say to me, are you okay? And you're like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to die. This is awful. The end of the world is coming. I'm going to end up in new market. I'm going to miss my meeting. And, and so it's a lot of catastrophizing type thinking that goes on when I'm in the middle of a, a panic attack. So something as simple as, hey, you might miss your subway stop becomes, oh my God, the end of the world is coming. You're never going to make it home. You're going to miss your meeting. You're going to lose your job. So uh, when did it start for you? Um, in retrospect, I've probably had it uh, to some degree or another my entire life. Uh, I finally started to acknowledge it about a decade ago. And at first, I didn't acknowledge my anxiety. I still was, hey, I'm just type A and high strung and I have some quirks. And um, I had my first major depressive episode. And so I was talking to a counselor and, you know, you kind of get talking and they're like, you talk about your life and your daily routines and you could kind of just see the look on his face was like, 
more going on here than just depression. <laughs> and uh, and so he would talk about, and I, I'll never forget, because the moment I realized it was probably, it's probably more than just a quirk. So one of my pieces, um, so I have a little bit of OCD with that. So um, I have a fear that even if I've not plugged in my curling iron, that I have not unplugged my curling iron. And so when I first graduated university, I lived in Hamilton and drove to Buffalo. And I literally left a half hour in my schedule, my commute every morning to leave the house, get to a certain point, think, oh my God, I haven't turned the curling iron off and drive home and check. And so that's planning. That, it, I mean, it is that, planning. And it's certainly an understanding of what's going on. But, and, but to me, it was just a quirk, right? It's an interesting quirk. So I was talking to him about it and you could just kind of see his face. And, and then he said, so have you ever thought about having anxiety? And I'm like, I don't have anxiety. I'm here for depression. And so we got talking a little bit more and he, he you know, then it starts to, he says to me, he says, do you have trouble in small groups? I'm like, yes, it's the most horrific moment in my life if I have to go to a cocktail party uh, or the moment where you walk into a meeting and there's small talk. He's like, so is that just with strangers? I'm like, oh no, it's with people I've known for 10 years. I, I have this fear. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, and in that, that sort of very good counselor way, he asks a couple more questions and doesn't say, wow. Um, but I got out of there and I'm like, okay, so maybe there is something more than just depression going on here. Did you think it was happening to other people though? Did you think everybody went to a, you know, a meeting or a cocktail party and and started to feel that way? Or did you just not understand the feeling at all that, it, that anything was even happening? Well, I think for me, part of it was... Um, I just thought everybody had their own little quirks and this happened to be mine. I didn't realize that I had a very long laundry list compared to most people. Right. Um, and you always hear people say, oh, you just fake it till you make it. Yeah, I'm nervous too. And I, and so when people say to me like, oh yeah, I'm nervous too. I'm like, like debilitating. You're throwing up in the car before you have to go into a cocktail party. But I just assumed like, oh yeah, they're probably just not talking about that. That's how nervous. Right. Turns out they have a whole different level of nervous. Like, oh, I wonder if it's going to be fun. And if somebody I'll know is there and I'm like, oh, those are the least of my worry. <laughs> Right. right. You know, so so you start to have some recognition. And I am very, very blessed that in my life, as I've gotten older, I have a tribe of or a clan of amazing people around me um, who also pointed out kind of when I started to acknowledge it, they're like, Oh yeah, sweetie, you you've we've known for a yeah, long you're time. Like, you're like yeah. everybody knew this. We've been holding you. for a long time that you'd go and get help for that. And so and so one of my coworkers pointed out. She said to me, oh, we knew that you had a problem. I'm like, well, how did you know? She's like, do you ever notice that when you go to a meeting, you always have to have four writing utensils? Four. Not one, not two. There has to be four. I'm like, well, what if one doesn't work? And she's like, uh-huh, that's why most people have two. I'm like, yeah, but what if the other two don't work? <laughs> right? So it's it's that type of – but in my mind, that was completely normal. Um, same – I have a weird addiction with lipstick the same way. If I don't have, if I have more than one lipstick in my purse, I have to have at least three. Because what happens if I lose the first two? And so again, those were just little gen quirks, I thought. Um, but the more aware I became, the more I That's realized. That's taking this... girl guides be prepared a little bit further it, maybe than it needs to go. It's true. And it's true. And, it, and again, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, how did I not know? But I, um, I traveled to Italy with a girlfriend and her family. And I had a little you know, kit, some people put band-aids and stuff in there. I literally, I could have performed open heart surgery with my little emergency kit. And, and, and this is, this is where anxiety though can be very difficult to deal with because I'm like, oh, I have everything I need. And then some, and you joke about it. And, but literally 
So I walked into a don't ask. I walked into a twenty foot tall iron statue on my very first day there, because I was I was looking at the vista so much that I didn't apparently notice the statue there. I though had everything in my kit. I did not need to go to a hospital. So it feeds into itself, right? So you're like, ah ha ha. See, you need I to pack right. these I things, said, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it, it goes that way and it just feeds into itself. So, you know, the next few trips after that, the emergency kit got bigger and bigger. And so now I could do open heart surgery and probably replace a kidney. Um, but I'm also the person you want on those on your trips because well, if you need true. a Band-Aid, I have one of every size, right? So it's, again, it you know, the anxiety feeds into itself and, and kind of is, is self-fulfilling sometimes. Yeah. And now I've heard um, with, uh, and I've talked to, therapists about this um ocd and anxiety often go hand in hand because the obsessive compulsive part of it is the one thing you can control so you can't control how you're going to feel or react when you go into a meeting but you can control the fact that you have four pens absolutely or that if my if i have pencils they absolutely are not mechanical pencils and they are sharpened to the point right so i might not be able to control the content of the meeting you think it's more likely that that the mechanical pencil will break than the one that's got lead just lead because i would actually think in the other opposite way. are you using just saying just saying using your brain and logic against my anxiety well, maybe i'm just i'm just throwing <laughs> that out there perfect. jennifer <laughs> so to me and part of that's my ocd i don't like the feeling of a mechanical pencil in my hands and again right just a gen quirk for the longest time and then i realized some people can touch any kind of writing implement and use it no questions asked yeah, yeah. right and that just is not i'm like so let me get this right. You don't stand in the pen aisle at BD's Basics for 20 minutes debating the best kind of writing implement? That's not normal? Well, I do, and then I lose it, and then I just use whatever I can find, right? I mean, I've, I've spent my life, because I have terrible handwriting, I've spent my life trying to find the pen that will make my handwriting better. Oh. See, it doesn't work that way. I'm beginning to learn that I just need to accept the fact that I have crappy handwriting. No, you don't. You have doctor's handwriting. You were meant to be a doctor. Oh, yes. that's it. That's so that's it. your next career choice. See, it's been made for you by your very handwriting. But, Thank you, Jennifer. <laughs> well, I will, t- I will tell you We can end now. I'm all sorted out and ready that's to right. hit the road running. <laughs> and handwriting is a lost art. So I will tell you, I'm the opposite. Um, I had horrible handwriting in grade two. Teacher threatened to fail me. So my mom made me practice every night for an hour. So I have got teacher's handwriting. Awesome. Do you know what you need handwriting for these days? Nothing. You don't even need it for an electronic signature at the bank on a check anymore. I'm like, great. I have a skill that no one needs. Between that and my spelling. Oh, wait, that's a lost art too. Well, just think though, if you go to a meeting and your computer or your iPad or whatever doesn't work, you can write. So in fact, you've got, okay, so we're really digressing and getting into an area that. So yeah, so my anxiety has led me down to a writing implementation. You could get a job with Bic Pen or something That's like right. that. That's right. I'm your tester. Pens. I'd be your tester. Okay. So uh, you, I I don't know if it was last year or the year before, you wrote an article for work that yes. was in, for internal uh, all about your depression, anxiety disorder and where that's taken you. Yes. And that's a pretty big step, especially for someone with anxiety. Um, I don't know if it was a moment of genius or a moment of, oh my God, what was I thinking? So I work for the Ontario Public Service. Uh, I work for the Ministry of Transportation and I am blessed to have a job I love. Um, but I noticed as more and more of the conversation came around about stigma and things like that. Bell Let's Talk has done a phenomenal job. We're, we're talking about mental illness more and more. 
Um, but there's still some some pretty strong stereotypes about what mental illness looks like. Um, so as you've expressed, or as you've seen in the media the last few weeks, it's it's often um, people equate it with violence and violent behavior and those types of things. Um, there's also a perception that people with mental illness are unemployable and they can't have a job and they're the people that you see on the streets or on, um, you know, uh, benefits and things like that. And, you know, I've often thought, oh, well, but that's not really what my experience of mental illness is. And so I was having lunch with some friends one day and one of my friends said, you know, you should probably say something. I'm like, are you kidding me? I have a career to worry about. She's like, but what about, isn't the whole thing you're reducing stigma? I'm like, yeah, but I still have a career to worry about. So I actually struggled with whether or not to say something. Um, and I happened to overhear, and, and luckily it wasn't in my workplace. Um, I was waiting for an outside meeting and I overheard somebody say something about somebody who had mental health issues in their office and how they were lazy and they were an unreliable employee and they wouldn't trust them with any big projects. And I thought to myself, oh, okay, okay. So this is clearly still a thing that's out there. And, and I had a really good conversation with a friend of mine and I said, oh, I think I'm ready. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to talk about a little bit at work. And she said, oh, okay. And I thought, oh, no, I can't do that. Well, lo and behold, she had talked to somebody else who was doing, uh, making sure there was a series of articles for our employee wellness stuff. And she called me and she said, would you write an article? And I'm like, well, it's now or never. <laughs> so um, I thought I can put a different face on it. I know that there's people I work with who have, who struggle with their mental health. Um, and I guess maybe in some ways we're the silent majority that the mental illness is a spectrum and you can be at the point where you absolutely are having trouble coping with everything, or you can be at the point where some days you don't even realize that you have it. And what we miss is the people who sometimes you don't even realize they have it because they're functioning. Um, I worked uh, in an area that is primarily made up of white middle-aged men. That was sort of, you know, engineering is definitely not or hasn't traditionally been full of women. Uh, so I had that kind of concern as well. Uh, I will say once I said it, everybody's like, that's amazing. Like well, it happens what? to white middle-aged men as well, right? Right, exactly. right. You know, and we, don't, we don't think of that. We, you and know, it, we don't know who that, that person is. Because they're invisible, right? Nobody wears a sign to work. Well, I have now a couple of times, but nobody wears a t-shirt that says, you know, I have anxiety. Um, I'm having suicidal thoughts today. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because... Um, to me, not a lot of people emailed me and said, hey, great article, I can reach out. But I would get it occasionally, you know, I would be in the cafeteria and somebody would stop me and they would be, oh, you know, thank you for saying something or, you know, my wife or, or my child. And then it started, I got it started to get a, little, a few more conversations about, um, you know, nobody ever talks about those of us who can function. You know, some days are better than others. It's, it's like anybody. Some days are better than others. Um, but I really wanted to open the conversation. I'm lucky enough. I'm further along in my career. I can't be fired right away for that, right? Um, and there's always the, well, what will the impact be on my career? I, I don't know because it's... Well, that's the thing. I mean, I think that too. I have my own business, um, my partner, I, it's a consulting business. And sometimes I think... Oh, I wonder what, you know, if there's someone out there who hasn't hired me because I've talked about being mentally ill. And then I think, well, who? I don't care. In, mm -hmm. in my, I mean, in my situation, it may be a lost job, but I don't want to work with that person anyway. And if I did work with that person, I'm sure going to know what they think. Yes. But they're not going to hire me, so who cares, right? So Well, and you never know the lost opportunities. And I'm starting, to be honest, in the last uh, six weeks or so, I've started to have some pretty honest conversations about myself about, so would it 
be impacting my career because somebody else is making that judgment or the jobs that I haven't applied for because of my anxiety, because I don't feel yeah, like I'm qualified. Um, and, it, you know, it kind of is, it has really come home the last few weeks to me that, you know, I'm starting to see people that, frankly, not to show my age, but I mentored are now becoming managers. And I'm like, or worse yet, sometimes you see people get jobs and you're like, you know, other people will be like, well, why didn't you apply? That should have been for you. And you're like, oh, wait, why didn't I apply? And the first line is always, oh, I'm busy and I love what I'm doing. And the second line is, okay, so did I really not apply for those reasons? Um, and lucky for me, I have a, an amazing counselor who, when I feel the need to talk to them, um, he has been really good about challenging me lately about, so you're worried about coming out about your mental illness being the problem. He said, what if you're your own, what if you are getting in your own way with your mental illness? And you're like, yeah, you're almost stigmatizing yourself. It right? is. And, and self-stigma is actually a very, very real thing. And it's a reason 49% of people don't actually seek help. So they take those messages that they get from the media and they have their own sort of feel. I, I will be the first to admit that I was probably in denial for the first five years after my first diagnosis of a major depressive issue. It's like, oh, no, I don't have that. Um, I went through the pretty traditional route of, oh, I don't need meds. Oh, I can handle this. It's all good. I just need to pull up my socks and um, learn the hard way that you can't Okay, my greatest line from every any talk I've ever heard was somebody told me to pull up my socks and I looked down and I wasn't wearing socks. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Maybe I should stop wearing socks so that I can stop castigating myself. Or right. Just right. Pull yourself up by your well, and it's interesting, too, because recently, sometime in the last six months, um, I'm talking about self-stigma. So I was out of the workforce for eight years. And and when and I uh, when I talk about or I think if I ever thought about applying for a job, what I think is, well, I was out of the workforce for eight years because of mental illness. Therefore, the previous 10 or however many years of my career don't count. Somehow you feel that's a zero. But if I had stayed, if I had stayed home with my kids, I wouldn't, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't zero out. And I don't know that for a fact, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't zero out that experience. I would go back and say, okay, I'm ready to go back to work. Now I have this experience. I'm going to apply for this kind of job. And it just hit me like this, like this lightning bolt. I'm I'm out there talking about stigma all the time and reducing stigma. And yet I have spent the last 20 years stigmatizing myself. I better get it together and start to realize that I was a person before I got sick. I'm not yep. just a person since I, since I got well. Yes. And, and, and that's the hard part though, right? Is discounting all of our experiences in life because we have a tendency to, oh, I don't want to think about the bad things, right? And, and even now I will tell you, um, so I had a, a counselor who told me, you know, it's important to journal. I'm like, are you kidding? I do not want to write down the bad stuff because I don't want to go back and ever see the bad stuff. Turns out I don't go back to any of my journals, good or bad. But even now I think about, oh, if something were to ever happen to me, my niece or my nephew or my friends were to find my journals, Oh, I don't yeah. Want, I don't want them to see the dark stuff, right? And you're like, and that's like, oh, because I don't want to think about the dark stuff that happened. I only want to think about the positive. Um, so it's it's being able, just as human beings, to kind of good or bad, this is how I ended up. And and the bad parts probably made me who I am way more than the good parts did. I just hate to admit that part of it. But but it is. And but it's the self-stigma. And part of that though is the it's easy to know what it's like and, and know that you can live a full life with mental illness. But imagine every time you turn on the radio, turn on the television, read a book, 
you're being told what mental illness looks like, at least from society's perspective. And that is never a good look, right? Media never says, hey, there's a positive ending with mental illness. Um, so sometimes I feel conflicted about, well, do I really have mental illness if today I feel okay, if this is what I'm supposed to look and feel like? Um, and I actually, a friend uh, had put a, a very interesting picture up on Facebook, and it was a picture of a girl who kind of would look depressed, what you would classically think of depressed. And next to that is she's fully made up. And the picture was, it said suicidal at the top of both of them. Yeah, I saw that. Right? It was, and an, it, it was so powerful. And it, and it was because to me, you're like, oh, wait, so I don't have to, I don't have to live up to what society says mental illness looks like. And the fact that I can put on lipstick and get dressed and go out to work doesn't mean I don't have mental illness, but it also shouldn't preclude me from being able to do those things. I have mental illness and I can get up and go to work and make a meaningful yeah. contribution. Yeah. But I'm also very lucky, and, and, and I think this is one of my, my sort of newer found passions, I'm very lucky with the employer I have. They are very progressive as a whole, the Ontario Public Service. But more importantly, I have access to employee assistance programs. I have access to a benefit program. So I realized that I also have, and it sounds sort of counterintuitive, I have a very privileged experience of mental illness that is well, not... No, I am, you know what? I, I had really good, really, really good benefits from um, from my employer when I when I wasn't in work. And, and I was in and out of hospital for a bunch of years. And I've always said how fortunate I was to have those benefits and to have a family who was around me and very supportive. And the number of people that I met in the hospital, the, the largest percentage of people I met in the hospital didn't have that. They were living on ODSP. They, their, their family wasn't around. They didn't have those kinds of supports. They left the hospital. They were living well below the poverty line. How are those people supposed to get well? So even if you can go to a doctor and the doctor can luckily find the right medication for you, which is trial and error at the best of times, what happens when the, the pharmaceutical that you may need isn't affordable? Or you have to choose between, um, you know, we talk about ODSP, sometimes they have benefit access. What about the working poor that don't have access to benefits and now have a $250 prescription once a month? So now I'm choosing between, you know, what bill don't I pay this month or do I get this drug? Well, oh, wait, now society is also telling me I probably shouldn't have this problem. I should pull up my bootstraps. So I'm not going to, I'm either not going to spend the 250 or I do spend the 250 and there's something else that has to go wrong in my life, right? Or something else that gets delayed. And, um, you know, like I said, it sounds counterintuitive, but I am very, I recognize how privileged I am to be able to, to have this. Yeah. And, and this is why I'm, you know, I'm very excited about the possibility of a national pharmacare program because if it is if it is doable, if it is possible, at least there will be some people who will be able to access. Um, but the other issue is, you know, just access to care. You know, I have an EAP counselor. Um, I have an amazing family practitioner's team to work with, but I've also had the opposite experience. Um, and so I worry for people who have that experience too. So what happens the first time you walk into your doctor's office and you're not believed or you're told to kind of pull up your, your, your bootstraps and, you know, everybody has sad days and things. I, you know, I've had that experience. I was very lucky to have the alternate experience and also to have, like I said, a clan or tribe of people who basically said, Jen, you need help. Um, and who had walked the walk. So I, when they said to me, I needed help, I probably listened more than if, you know, one of my non-mental health friends had said something to me. Um, so, you know, I think that's the other thing is there's such a range of experience. And, and my thinking in putting this article out was if I could help people uh, in my workplace understand one that person, it's okay. One person, right? One person. One, even just yeah, one person. just one person. 
to, yeah. to have the experience that that know that you're not you know you're not the only one freaking out on the subway platform with the TTC and and it was hard and it was hard and and there's still parts of my job that are hard so I went to an amazing course this week I was so lucky to get onto this course um, very privileged to do it. I literally spent 48 hours ahead of time. So how many ways can this go badly? I'm going to miss my bus to Toronto. I'm not going to be as smart as the other people in the room. Um, I actually had the, the quintessential nightmare where I showed up to class naked. You know, like it was all of those things. And I, so I actually lost out probably on the first half of the morning of the experience, thinking of all the things that could go wrong yeah, yeah. and not being in the moment. And that was when it was like, okay, wait, don't let the brain take over. And on a good day, I can say to the brain, stop taking over. On a bad day, which was the 48 hours prior, it was like the brain was catastrophizing everything. So yeah, Jennifer, thank you for coming in. I really, really appreciate it.